So back again with 3000 Versts and uh, the Centre for another podcast looking at a few of the issues uh, around at the moment. And I think one of the topical ones of this week has been uh, the D'Souza case, uh, which seems to be a little odd in that uh, it is a legal case where there is quite clearly a remedy for the complainant uh, that the complainant refuses to accept uh, and rather make a very big legal point that really in any legal consideration is simply one that she's going to lose? Well, it, it's more than just a legal point, isn't it, David? It's really a, it's a kind of a political campaign that's um, being taken through a legal avenue. And I, for, for me anyway, it was, some, it was a, a case that um, the, the political dimension of it worries me as much as the legal dimension. And in a sense, it's as serious as the backstop because British citizenship law in Northern Ireland, I mean, we're talking about something that's a, a kind of a basic building block of but, but UK sovereignty. UK law, though. This is Absolutely. not appealing against a Northern Ireland law. This is UK immigration uh, rules. I know, I, I understand that. And, and this, is, this, this is the reason that it is so serious, because the application of UK citizenship law in Northern Ireland is one of the building blocks of, of UK sovereignty in this part of the world. If we're exempted from that kind of um, legislation, then our British sovereignty is eroded. And I mean, I, I think that's the aim of the campaign. If, if the law were to change, it would raise questions about treating people differently in Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And it clearly would have consequences because this case is uh, based on the idea that there are different rules for EEA citizens and, uh, and British citizens. But regardless of that, the upper tribunal did state that if the intention had been there, um, it, it, she was making the argument uh, based on the Good Friday Agreement. The upper upper tribunal did state fairly clearly that if the intention had been there to rescind British citizenship law or rescind automatic British citizenship law um, in Northern Ireland, oh, uh, then that would have been made clear. But this seems to be in another, the legislation. Yeah, this seems to be another case where what 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 nationalism seems to think ought to be somehow in the law should be the law without mm -hmm. without looking at the, the the remedy available because you know, Sinn Féin have rather and I think pretty absurdly and blatantly claimed that somehow this case is a denial of Irishness in fact the Home Office itself pointed out that the clear remedy is for uh, Mr. Souza to renounce the very citizenship that she never wanted in the first place. I can't see that being terribly hard in 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 a real world, uh, not nationalist world perhaps, but in the real world, that's not a big ask to renounce something you never wanted, um, uh, and simply to bring her husband in on her Irish passport. So there is a remedy to her position. It is not a denial of her bringing her husband into Northern Ireland. It's simply that she can't seem to do that without renouncing something she doesn't want. She, she argues that because she considers that she was never a British citizen, that she should never, uh, that she shouldn't have to pay this fee or whatever it is to um, renounce her British citizenship. I think at the bottom 
of all of this, and we, we've talked about um, you, know, you know that, that there's um, a deliberate attempt to confuse identity and and the law or yeah. citizenship. But I think at the bottom of this, you know, nationalists sold the Good Friday Agreement to voters on the basis that it diluted British sovereignty in Northern Ireland or that it amounted somehow to joint authority. And you keep seeing this kind of attitude yeah. um, surfacing in all kinds of cases, whether it's this, whether it's in issues relating to Brexit. Brexit actually exposed it as a falsehood and we're still kind of dealing with the consequences of that tantrum. The problem with the, these kinds of arguments is that they always ignore the central tenet of the Belfast Agreement, which, which was the principle of consent, that people in Northern Ireland got to choose whether they wanted to be part of the United Kingdom or the Republic of Ireland. And it and actually the Sinn Féin position, and I mean, they've been um, joined by other parties puzzlingly in this, uh, in this campaign and backing this campaign. The Sinn Féin position has been to try and imply that irrespective of the principle of consent, the two states, the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom, have a kind of equal status in Northern Ireland. And they've used identity arguments to, to, to forge that case. And, and rather remarkably, too, you know, Coveney and Bryker seem to be quite happy to accept an, an interpretation that somehow this needs to be looked at, which from... Um, a, a statesman-like point of view, if you like, or for, for, for the politics of, of governments and the, uh, and the relationships between government is, is a fairly remarkable uh, stretch uh, in international relationships. Yes, it, it's absolutely remarkable as well that we don't have some pushback in that from the British government. You wonder exactly what Coveney and Varadkar have to do to have their kind of their knuckles wrapped by um, either the Northern Ireland Minister or uh, or the Prime Minister. Well, we can't expect any knuckles wrap, uh, certainly through the NIO, as we've, we've seen in the past few mm. years. Okay, I want to move uh, on, sli slightly looking as, again at you know, the reality of the Good Friday Agreement being that there is a UK and there is a, an Irish state, Articles 2 and 3 went, uh, you have two different economies there, um, and, and perhaps uh, looking at that idea from a lot of the Remain people that um, there is an all-Ireland economy uh, and that that is, is very important and that Northern Ireland needs to look at how successful the Republic has been uh, in building its economy since its crash. Um, because we've seen a number of articles recently that suggest that that all-Ireland economy is a bit of a fiction. Well, it is a fiction or at least the... Um the weight that's been given given to it is certainly fictional. I mean, the, the, the statistic, just from a raw statistical basis, the amount of goods that we export to Great Britain are four times uh, what we export to the Republic of Ireland. And we import uh, six times as many go uh, as uh, much goods from Great Britain as we export, uh, as we import from uh, the Republic of Ireland. And no one has really looked at the costs involved in that. In, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon and everybody's in a great flurry about what's coming out the other side of the negotiations in Brussels. Uh, but wh whatever comes out there, uh, no one has really looked at the cost of doing business in a changed environment under various scenarios. Um, most of it has said, well, no deal. Other, the, the last 
two that were uh, side by side said no deal and the arrangements under May's deal there wouldn't be much difference in 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 real costs so no. it's but no one's done anything remotely like an analysis of what's coming in I think Esmond Burney in the newsletter uh, was reported having told the House of Commons uh, at the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee that uh, it would it could cost 500 million uh, and a lot of paperwork but again that was depended on how it was all uh, going to wind out in the paper well i mean the the, the point is that uh, what, well what what's rumored to be happening anyway um in the deal we're expecting that uh, northern ireland companies when they bring goods in from great britain will probably have to pay uh, tariffs up front and that then they will recoup though that money if the goods are destined only for Northern Ireland, and um, you know you might think that that's unimportant, but we know how important cash flow has been to local companies re uh, recently, um, right? Bus Especially small businesses is a good example. Small businesses, family businesses, that half a billion that uh, Esmond Burney cites could be fatal to not to companies that could be. Um, it could spell the end of jobs in Northern Ireland. So it's not just a notional figure, it's it's an important detail. But we have to wait and see, and we don't know, and we don't know, because no one's really looked at those costs, and I guess until, until we know what the business framework is going to be going forward, we don't really know, we, we won't know what the costs are going to be. I want to look slightly beyond just the the, the trade figures, and look at um, well, look at the trade figures in the bigger macro picture of, of the Southern Irish economy, which is held up as a uh, as the way small nations need to work, uh, and and the model for Northern Ireland's future. I mean, we've had talks in the past of changing corporation tax because Southern Ireland is a low corporation tax economy, um, but I think there's been a lot of individual articles that have popped up in the news. Uh, that brings some worry. The first one that raised my eyebrow was uh, an IMF report um, earlier, I think earlier this year, which suggested that of all the foreign direct investment coming into the Republic, three quarters of it was phantom. Uh, and then you looked at, you know, as I started to, to go around, I discovered a site that looks at the, 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 the fundamental economics of, of, of individual states. And what, there was one graph that really made me sit back, and that was where, uh, when Apple booked its, all its European operations into Ireland for uh, corporate governance purposes, uh, the Irish GDP increased by 25%. Uh, it seems to me that there's an awful lot of the, the, the global uh, big boys uh, whose money simply rests in the account. It's a bit like there's a whole set of international father Ted's uh, that have uh, money resting in the Irish banking system uh, for the purpose of simply avoiding tax, uh, particularly uh, tax in the UK, Germany and France, the, the big the big economies of Europe. Well, I mean, I, I had a glance at this um, paper that you're referring to, uh, David, and I know that um, the estimate that it came up with was that 40% of the Irish economy, in effect, um, wasn't real and I suppose you could say in a way this has been down to a degree of cleverness on the behalf of the Irish government and that they're entitled to 
um, game the system in any way they see fit, so long as that, uh, so long as they uh, abide by the rules. But I suppose the wider point is that this isn't likely to be sustainable in the long term, and that already the EU is looking at it and other well, o- you know, supranational. O- yeah, the o- OECD last week uh, have basically made proposals on a global tax policy uh, for, for, for it. It was heralded in newspapers as being for the, the big US tech companies, but in fact it goes well beyond tech companies. Uh, and, and that seems to me to, to just be the flag up that says, you know, you, the, the Irish model is under severe threat. And I know uh, the new EU Commission President uh, van der Leer, uh, you know, okay, manifestos maybe don't count for much for politicians, but certainly fair tax and qualified majority, in other words, uh, uh, bringing tax into more equal status across the EU and also that that should be done on qualified majority, that's coming. Um, and I think maybe that was reflected in the Bank of Ireland, stating that, that um, the corporation tax take in Southern Ireland was ultimately not sustainable. Big it's, questions. It's an interesting dynamic in a way because at one level, um, because of the Brexit negotiations, we're seeing the, the EU kind of cuddling up to the Republic of Ireland like never before. And that's an important optic from their point of view. But with but, the Apple case, with the, the mm. president's um, kind of emphasis on the level playing field and tax fairness and everything else, um, there's a, another pressure coming on the Republic from, from a different uh, um, from a different sort of arm of the EU, so that's a, it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think I think going back slightly, if we like, to to where all these discussions and negotiations are going. Again, one of the things that no one has talked about is under May's rules. Of course, I think Varadkar could claim a huge success, or the Irish could claim a huge success in effectively having entrapped the UK into what ultimately could only be. Uh, an arrangement that kept the British economy inside a customs union and inside the single market. It seems that whatever might come out of the latest iteration of, of, of proposals, that won't be the case. And that means that uh, you know, whatever they manage to do in keeping uh, Northern Ireland uh, closer, it creates bar- a, a significant barrier into the rest of the UK economy, you know, the, the, the trade from Holyhead uh, and du- well, between Holyhead and Dublin will be effectively a customs barrier. It will be a place where they're going to have to pay customs bar- uh, tariffs and where that same issue about uh, bringing in goods uh, outside the single market are going to, is going to be uh, high on the agenda. Well, I mean, I, I suppose we can only speculate as to um, the motivations of Leo Varadkar and is it is his uh, priority to appear like a good European and get himself a nice cushy EU commissioner's job at some stage? Is his priority to sort of to, to, to pose as a Republican on the Irish domestic stage and to kind of feed into Anglophobia and ride the crest of that wave in the short term? Or has his strategy, has his uh, brinksmanship eventually failed because the Republic of Ireland, uh, because the Republic of Ireland businesses are going to see this substantial increase in costs when they do business into Great Britain, which is by far... And the other way, 
you know, it, it, it's not going to, you know, the, the land border has been a bit of a distraction here because yeah. that may be free flowing, we don't know, but it may be free flowing, but they will not be able to say the same of Hollyhead and Dunleary. That, that, that is not, or, or, or down into, into the other uh, trade routes across to Europe, the paperwork will increase substantially. And the assumption at one stage was that that, was that east-west um, trade was for Adker's priority and he yeah. was trying to be clever and, uh, and, and, and lock the UK into a close relationship with the EU in order to make sure that the, the, the Irish economy was protected. And of course that matters because if we think of the, if, if we take those economic reports that you know, three quarters of FDI is phantom, if we look at the Global Britain report and 40% and, and of the economy is inflated uh, uh, artificially in terms of GDP, um, that means that the, the trade in goods and services into the UK has far more importance than is being presented by, by anyone who is arguing that we're great with the EU, look at where all our exports go. In fact, really isn't the case. No, it looks like a, a miscalculation um, from the Irish side and, and, and deliberate decision to go along with the kind of short-term politics of it rather than the long-term. And until the end of this week, or maybe next week, we'll not know. So I think by the time we meet up again in a couple of weeks... Maybe, maybe something will Maybe something will happen. <laughs> we've, we've been thinking that for three years now, over three years, uh, yeah. David. But um, we live in hope, I suppose. All right, well, you know, for now, good talking to you again. Thank you. Cheers.